This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Meet George Jetson. The 1960s space-age cartoon, The Jetsons, predicted a future of convenience where electronic arms brush your teeth and multi-course meals appear at the push of a button. The cartoon, or at least some of the home automation ideas it featured, are the subject of a panel today at Denver Startup Week. It's called, Did the Jetsons Lie to Us? Ryan Margolis will be one of the speakers. He's co-founder of Denver-based Notion, which created a smart home monitoring technology. And Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. So let's start with the Jetsons. How close are we to the type of home automation the show imagined back in the 1960s? Sure. Yeah, fun question. Um, you know, I think there are quite a few uh, products, like there's, there's smart ovens that can cook your food automatically for you. There are voice-activated assistants that you can ask questions to around your home that can help you, um, you know, buy groceries. They can help you cook. They can help you, you know, they can even help you with your homework. Um, so I, I think we're getting close. Some of the stuff with the Jetsons where they maybe um, – your food just kind of appears for you. That's still out there, right? Because you still have to provide the groceries and everything that go into that smart oven. Right. And we're not flying around in space yet in little (laughs) kind of space cars. Not quite yet. (laughs) One topic your panel will discuss is what's missing from the world of home automation. What do you think people should have that doesn't yet exist? Yeah. So, um, our, our kind of bet for Notion is the next step to to reach that early majority, not just the early adopters or those those kind of innovator curves, um, is really to have uh, a really simple and purposeful interface, a really simple user experience where you don't have to have an electrical engineering degree to interface with these devices. It doesn't take, you know, a professional to install throughout your home. Um, and that's what we've really set out to do with Notion. But I think that, that kind of ease of use is important. And beyond that, allowing you to take action on what information is created by these Internet of Things devices. So if I leave my garage door open, I want to be able to actually close it remotely, not just know that it was open. And um, do you see that in terms of, uh, you know, in general, if you could dream of what there would be in 20 years, what would you want? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I think it's easy for some of these kind of devices to take away. Um, you can rely on them too much where we're not actually – um, participating in all the, the things that happen in your home. So I, I still hope we have that kind of autonomy and, um, you know, creativeness around our, around our homes. But I think they really can relieve a burden. You know, your car has always told you if the gas is low or if, you know, you're out of washer fluid or you're going too fast. Um, in our, our kind of minds, it, it's your home should do the same thing. Your home is a much larger investment. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's important that you get that kind of information as well. Your technology is something you devised with a friend you grew up with in Longmont, who you've known since you were four years old. And the idea for what's essentially a home monitoring device um, came to you because of a new puppy. Can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sometimes when, when I tell a story, it sounds fake because we, I was, you know, talking about a puppy. It sounds like we made it up. Um, but uh, back when the, the company, the idea started, my, my girlfriend then, my wife now, um, we had just gotten a golden retriever puppy. Um, Apollo is his name. Uh, a few days after we had gotten our carbon monoxide alarm actually went off in the middle of the night, um, which is a pretty jarring experience. Um, fixed the issue. The furnace was just kind of on the fritz. We opened the windows, got it replaced. But I remember thinking the next few days, you know, what good is a carbon, mono- carbon monoxide smoke alarm if you're not there to hear it? Um, I was thinking my, my, my dog will just be here and I, I wouldn't know about it. 
So I had called Brett uh, a few days later and said, this is it, man. We're going to make a Wi-Fi connected smoke alarm, your carbon partner. monoxide alarm. Yeah. Brett, ex- yeah. exactly. Yeah. So explain a little more about what your technology does. Absolutely. So um, our our sensors uh, are all-in-one sensors. They can monitor. They listen for smoke alarms. They're not actually smoke alarms. Um, they can also tell you about doors or windows opening. Uh, if you left a light on, they can tell you about water leaks, garage doors being left open, um, all sorts of things, all in one small device that's really, really, really easy to use. So does it have an alarm system if someone comes into the house? How does that work? Great question. So it's all um, mobile-based. The sensors all communicate around your home. Most people have about four or five around their home, um, and everything comes to you on your phone. A simple app interface allows you to take action quickly. You can notify a neighbor or a spouse. Um, you can call the authorities as needed, uh, but it's all, it's all on you. It's a self-monitored system. And you brought uh, the device with you. It's kind of like a large Oreo, a little thicker. Uh, explain what it looks like. Yeah, so uh, they're they're round sensors. They're they're as Andrew said, they're they're about the th- the size of an Oreo. Um, they're really easy to place around your home. They're, they're just white. Um, the intent was to kind of blend in and and not really um, take away from the aesthetic of your home, uh, but still provide kind of a nice balance. So again, easy to use, and all sensors do all things at all times. So the same one on your front door you know, can listen for smoke alarms or do temperature or, you know, even water leaks on your front door if you're maybe you're worried about that. And where do you put them? How do you know in terms of water leaks? Do you have to place sure. them strategically so you get them? You know, you know what's happening? Yeah. So the app will kind of guide you. Um, and that's a great question. Most of our users are using, uh, they have at least one sensor for water leaks. So you'll put it next to a water heater, um, next to an appliance like a dishwasher, a washing machine, perhaps. Um, for If you're doing any sort of security monitoring, you'll put it directly on a door. You know, some people put them on gun safes or liquor cabinets or refrigerators. Um, the app will guide you through. There's just a there's an adhesive on the back of the device, um, really easy to pull the liner off and then place it on whatever you're trying to monitor. So you get a text if something isn't quite right um, and you're not at the house. Um, is the device connected to a phone center or with an alarm service, something like sure. that? Yeah, so right now it's just Wi-Fi based. Um, so uh, to your, to your point, kind of that you it is required that you have a Wi-Fi connection. Um, we are in in the works on a cellular version of that that can allow you to be independent of your Wi-Fi. And a three pack retails for about uh, two hundred and twenty dollars. How is this different from Nest Technologies, which also has an alarm system um, sure. and? Uh, other things that it does um, and and other monitoring systems that do similar things? Yeah, great question. So compared to traditional security, um, Notion is is much less cost uh, prohibitive and we don't have a contract, right? If you sign up for, you know, a monitoring service, it can be a three-year contract at 50 bucks a month. Um, for competitors like Nest, and we, we really think we're, we're complementary to Nest. Um, we do, you know, they're more security-based right now with their new products, um, but we actually integrate with their technology. If your thermostat is on and Notion knows that your doors or windows are open, we can turn your thermostat off for you. So there's a number of integrations that we do with them that are, that are kind of complementary. Um, but we call our concept home awareness, and it's an extension of security where it's not so much that you're um, solely worried about it, you know, someone breaking in and, and, and stealing your stuff around your home. It's about things that... Um, you know, you want to know as a homeowner, did I leave my lights on in my basement? Is there a water leak down there? Did I leave my garage door open when I left for work? Um, 
that's all this kind of awareness concept that's much more than just traditional security in, in our eyes. So do you have an example of someone who, um, you know, was somehow rescued from a disaster because they had a device in their home? Yeah, absolutely. We, we actually have um, we have a, a large number of testimonials from people who have uh, mitigated potential major water leak damage because they got an alert from Notion quickly and they were able to go um, remedy the issue, right? So uh, the number one claim for insurance companies is water leak damage. Um, and Notion can help prevent that by, we like to, sometimes like to say it's the difference between a, a mop and a basement remodel. Um, so again, those testimonials are really powerful and, and we love those coming in. People use them in creative ways. They put them on mailboxes. Um, they put them on washing machines to know when the cycle is complete. Um, all sorts of things about that kind of awareness concept. So there is this idea of perhaps a partnership between insurance companies and having these kinds of devices. Yeah, absolutely. So even now, our biggest customers are insurance companies. Um, they're looking to kind of differentiate uh, from other insurance products and kind of individualize the way they approach insurance risk assessment. Um, Internet of Things, smart home data, that's going to be really powerful in the insurance industry. uh, And and we hope we can be a major player there. Now, if I'm in the Bahamas, say, and, um, you know, I get a text, I worry that there's not much I can do. Sure. So there's a number of things we can we do. We allow you to kind of um, share the alert with someone who may be close by. Um, we also have a technology in our app that um, if there's an emergency like a smoke alarm sounding, you can call the authorities that are closest to your home no matter where you are. So if you're in the Bahamas and you dialed 911, you're not going to get connected to your local dispatch center. If you call through the Notion app, you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can save some time there. So it's at your discretion. Um, but there's a number of things you can do with, you know, if you're going to be traveling, you can have a, a spouse or a neighbor tap into your system. Um, but you can also share those alerts uh, at your discretion as well. And you talked a little bit about adding future features. Give me one feature that you'd really like to see that this does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the integrations for us are, are the future, right? So you can imagine Notion can detect, you know, if a window opens or, or breaks when it um, – if you have connected light bulbs throughout your home – Maybe when the window opens, your entire home lights up red and starts Mm -hmm. flashing, right? So you can imagine that might deter someone from breaking in and actually entering. Um, I think there's a lot of things we can take action on around that. Like if your windows are open and it's about to rain, we can remind you that you maybe want to close them. Um, Things like with the Nest thermostat I had already mentioned. um, Those integrations are key for us. We're really excited about that. And even with the voice-activated assistants like uh, Amazon Echo and, and Google Home. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. Ryan Margolis is co-founder of Denver-based Notion, a home monitoring technology. He's speaking today at Denver Startup Week at a panel called Were the Jetsons Right? Denver Startup Week is a gathering of entrepreneurs. It runs through Friday. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. Who pays for the damages caused by climate change? That question could be decided in the courts. Last week, San Francisco and Oakland sued five major oil companies for billions of dollars. A study out earlier this month looks at dozens of fossil fuel companies and then calculates just how much sea level and temperature rise each company is responsible for. Richard Heady is one of the researchers. He has a nonprofit called the Climate Accountability Institute in Snowmass. And Richard, welcome to the show. 
Good morning, Andrea. I'm glad to be with you. The San Francisco and Oakland lawsuits allege these companies knew their products contributed to climate change and should pay billions of dollars to keep homes and neighborhoods safe from sea level rise. How fair is it to assign responsibility to oil companies? They certainly wouldn't be in business if consumers didn't want their products. Well, that's true, but uh, oil and gas and coal companies have known about the hazards of climate change for at least 30, if not 40 years. And instead of owning up to the hazards of climate change and engaging in a public dialogue about how to handle climate change in the future, starting in the 70s or at least in the 80s when international attention and scientific consensus emerged, they instead invested in obfuscation and deception and denial of the climate science in order to protect their business. So they have some culpability, and they need to help address the damages and the costs and the protections for the consequences. We'll talk in a bit about some of the efforts uh, oil and gas companies have done to rectify some of this. But um, this study in the journal Climatic Change finds that nearly two-thirds of industrial carbon dioxide and methane is attributed to just 90 companies. What types of companies are we talking about? We're talking about oil and gas companies headquartered and operating in the United States as well as around the globe in Asia and Europe in Russia, China, Africa, Latin America, that have engaged in, in exploration and production of oil and gas, as well as coal mine operators around the world. And we find that uh, we have attributed almost two-thirds of all carbon dioxide emissions from their products to these 90 entities. You also include uh, cement companies. Why is that? We include cement companies because we're looking at just the 90 entities that emit the most carbon, and we had a threshold of 8 million metric tons per year. And we included a few cement companies because in the process of making cement from limestone, carbon dioxide is liberated in the heating process. So it's a major industrial source, much like a coal mine is, for example. Now, it's, it's important to recognize that we're, we're focusing and attributing emissions for each of these companies uh, for their operations, which means uh, how much energy they expand and the vented CO2 and the flaring that goes on and the energy use for the company itself to bring these products to market, run refineries, for example, and pipelines. But 90% of the total footprint for each of these companies, from ExxonMobil to Total to, to Oil to any of the other companies, Saudi Remco, for example, 90% of it is in their products. And these companies, uh, while they're satisfying public demand, also deceived us about the dangers of using their products. So you developed this way to show the percentage that each of these companies over time have contributed to sea level and global temperature rise. Um, and let's just take one of these companies, ExxonMobil. What did you find there? Well, if we look at just the emissions attributed from the products they conveyed to the market, as well as their operational emissions, but particularly their products. And if we do look at the their production from just 1980 when the science was emerging that there was a problem. In fact, Exxon's own scientists were doing research, progressive research in the 70s and 80s, trying to understand the carbon cycle and warning management that there was a problem with fossil fuel combustion. So since 1980, when they've been aware of this issue, they have produced about 28 billion barrels of oil and 116 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, which we've all shared in the consumption of. And that has resulted in the emissions of almost 19 
billion tons of carbon dioxide. And that has increased atmospheric carbon dioxide concentration by over two parts per million out of the, out of the rise uh, to 400 parts per million in the atmosphere now. This drives climate change and, and warming. And it's a minuscule amount of proportion of the temperature rise, but in terms of sea level rise, it's almost one millimeter just from that company's products alone. And we know that as sea level rises from thermal expansion of the oceans, as well as melting of glaciers in Greenland and Antarctica, the sea levels are going to rise. And for each millimeter, we're losing about 640 square kilometers of land somewhere on the Earth, where there's over uh, almost 3 million linear kilometers of shoreline in the world. So a lot of this is uninhabited, but that land is worth something to the animals and the, and the fisheries, as well as all the coastlines populated by humans. So even just this tiny amount has a, a large effect, you say. And what companies are the largest contributors to sea level rise and increasing temperatures? Well, if we look historically from the beginning of uh, our research back to the 1880s, Chevron tops the list at almost 48 billion tons of CO2. Uh, and almost 5 millimeters of sea level rise, 4.6 millimeters of sea level rise. Saudi Aramco is second and ExxonMobil third. But that order switches when we only look at the 1980 when science was, uh, the consensus was indicating a real problem with continued use of fossil fuels. If we only look from 1980 forward, then Saudi Aramco takes the lead because they're a very large producer in Saudi Arabia. Gazprom, the... Uh, natural gas company in, in Russia is the second, and that's 1.14 millimeters. Gazprom was 1.43. Sorry, Saudi Aramco is 1.43. Mm. And ExxonMobil then takes a third slot at 0.92 millimeters, or 145,000 acres worth of lost land. And it's important to bear in mind that sea level rise is going to continue to rise for decades and centuries, given the carbon dioxide we've already put into the atmosphere much less what we're putting in into the future. Now, the data you use covers uh, 1880 to 2010. Is that right? That's correct. And some of these companies weren't around in 1880. Others have been bought and sold. So how is it possible to actually say, for example, this is how much sea level rise, say, Exxon is responsible for? Well, the core of our research really focuses on 1980 to 2010. Um, there have been some minor mergers and acquisitions in that time. ExxonMobil bought XTO Energy, for example, for its shale gas in, in Texas, and some other mergers with Shell. But by and large, the companies ha are still in existence. When you look back to the early days of the formation of the oil industry, there's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions, and we track the major ones. Chevron, for example, has acquired and merged with Tex Texaco over time, with Gulf, with Tenneco, uh, with Getty Oil, and a number of companies that we also track over time, looking at libraries around the world for original uh, company-reported statements of how much oil, gas, and coal they produced. We asked the uh, Colorado Oil and Gas Association to comment on this report. They referred us to two of the companies that operate in the state uh, that were named in the study, ConocoPhillips and ExxonMobil. 
ConocoPhillips said it can't comment on the report because of the pending litigation and the companies referring to cases in California that were filed this month and earlier this summer. And ExxonMobil hasn't responded. But we also asked the American Petroleum Institute for its response, and that's the National Trade Association that represents the oil and gas industry. They're still reviewing the study, but a spokesperson in an email noted that, quote, due to technology innovation and efficiency improvements, cleaner fuels, and the increased use of clean and abundant U.S. natural gas to produce electricity, the industry has significantly contributed to the reduction of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions that today are near 25-year lows. So pretty much of a mouthful, but how do you respond to this? Well, it's true that uh, modern oil and gas companies pay attention to reducing their operational emissions, such as cutting methane. ExxonMobil just announced that it was launching a program to reduce fugitive methane from its U.S. operations. It should do that internationally as it learns how to do it well. And captured methane is a valuable resource, and we shouldn't be liberating it to the atmosphere from whether it's coal mines or oil and gas facilities. It's also true that uh, ExxonMobil in particular is a very well and efficiently run company. They pay, pay attention to losses. And operational emissions have been reduced. It's also true, like API pointed out, API pointed out, that switching from crude oil and coal to natural gas can reduce overall emissions. But that ignores the additional methane emissions from providing so much fracked uh, natural gas to the market. And that's not taken account of in API's contention. But overall, the U.S. consumers as well as national and state governments have a huge opportunity to reduce overall carbon emissions, both in the domestic sector, in households, in transportation. We need to focus on opportunities to improve vehicles and buildings and industry and homes. And we all have a share both in the responsibility and in the opportunities. And um what would you like to see come out of this research, just to wrap up? Well, my primary interest, if I may aim high, is to show the industry that it has an obligation to align its investments and production targets with science-based objectives to reduce emissions globally by 80% or more by 2050. They have the technology and the resources and the skill and, in my mind, the moral and legal obligation to pursue all avenues to reduce global emissions according to the science. Uh, and they can do that. They have the resources and uh, public pressure as well as potential successful legal lawsuits will cause them to pay attention to opportunities to do just that. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Richard Heady's nonprofit is the Climate Accountability Institute in Snowmass, Colorado. It focuses on corporate accountability, ethics, and the legal implications of climate change. He's one of the authors of a study published this month on the rise of global temperatures and sea level from emissions traced to oil, gas, and cement companies. The study appears in the journal Climatic Change. A recent photo from Houston after Hurricane Harvey shows elderly women knitting in chest-deep water as they wait for rescue. That murky-looking water can be toxic soup filled with things you might not expect, like antibiotics from agricultural waste. And it's the subject of today's beta test, where we explore groundbreaking science related to Colorado. 
Emily Garner is a Ph.D. student at Virginia Tech. She studied the Colorado floods, which took place four years ago this month. Garner told CPR's Nathan Heffel that floodwaters have an impact on the spread of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Emily, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. To start, I want to say upwards of 75% of antibiotics used agriculturally pass through livestock undigested, and that waste can make it into rivers. Before the 2013 flood, scientists at CSU studied the Cash Lapooter watershed. It's pretty pristine where it starts, high in the Rockies, but it then flows into a heavy agricultural area near Fort Collins and Greeley. Those studies were looking at the influence of these antibiotics in the water. What exactly did they find? Yeah, so we're looking at antibiotic resistance genes in the Cachalapooter River. I'm, I'm sure you've heard of antibiotic resistance. It's a huge public health challenge. Uh, we hear a lot about bacteria like MRSA, which is a common antibiotic resistant bacteria. So we're looking for uh, the DNA that enables those bacteria to resist antibiotics. Um, and so going back to as early as 2004, when we were sampling the Cachalapooter River, uh, we found a variety of different antibiotic resistance genes. And uh, one of these in particular, known as SOL1, which is a sulfonamide resistance gene, which is a type of antibiotic, uh, was highly correlated with animal feeding operations and wastewater treatment plants uh, impacting the Cachalapooter River. So essentially, you started at the at the, the the headwaters, and things were different as they moved downstream. You found uh, different bacteria. Is, is that correct? That's right. So we're actually looking at DNA. Um, so it's a little different than a lot of studies looking at uh, the actual bacteria. So uh, we're we're really res- interested in these uh, genetic elements called antibiotic resistance genes. Uh, And the reason we're so interested in the genes as opposed to the bacteria is because they can actually move from one bacteria to another. And and how do they do that? Through uh, reproduction and things like that? It's called uh, horizontal gene transfer. Um, So there are a couple different ways it can happen. If two cells are uh, next to each other, they can actually form a bridge between the cells and transfer their DNA, you know. They, they kind of say, here, this, this gene is really helpful. Let me, let me pass it along to you because I think it'll help. Um, another way is that if one cell dies and its DNA becomes um, just floating around out in the environment, another cell can actually pick that up and say, oh, is this, this useful to me? And they might find that it is, in fact, uh, something that will allow them to uh, have an advantage out in the environment. So why do antibiotics influence what bacteria genes we see. So out in the environment, you might have a mix of bacteria, some that are carrying these resistant genes and some that are not. And so if you have antibiotics present, those can eliminate the bacteria that are not carrying these resistance genes and leave only the ones that do have the resistance genes to then uh, reproduce and kind of become more abundant in the watershed. So in a sense, you're getting rid of the, the good bacteria that, that you know, is not resistant to this stuff. Yes, that's exactly right. In this study following the flooding in 2013 in Colorado, what did you think you were going to find? What effect did you think the flooding had on these uh, bacteria and the genes in this bacteria? So there were two possibilities that we thought uh, we might see when we went and sampled the river. Um, The influx of water 
we thought might lead to an increase in resistant bacteria. For example, maybe septic systems were disturbed during the flooding. Maybe um, there was an overflow from the wastewater treatment plant. Things like that are really common in really extreme floods. And so we thought that that could contribute to an increase in these bacteria. But on the other hand, we thought it was also possible that we could see kind of a dilution effect. So if, if there's a ton of water that comes in um, and washes all these bacteria downstream and the sediment that they kind of like to live on downstream, we might see less of the bacteria. So what did you find? Uh, so we did actually find uh, that it appears that the bacteria were diluted or flushed downstream. Uh, when we looked at the abundance of all known antibiotic resistance genes, we actually saw that these numbers decreased immediately following the flood. And was that was expected? But what happened? Did, did it did things change shortly after that? Or yeah, so we continued to sample for the next ten months after the flood, and we found that levels of the resistance genes actually uh, returned to pre-flood levels within ten months. Now, why was that? As we know, the presence of antibiotics can kill the good bacteria and leave only uh, resistant bacteria, but metals can actually have the same effect. And so um, if there are low levels of antibiotics and metals in this water over time, we believe that that can contribute to a return in the level of antibiotic resistance to pre-flood conditions. Now, what do these results mean? What do you take away from it? Should people be worried about drinking their water? So, as you know, antibiotic resistance is a huge public health challenge, and it's something that people are worried about all around the world. And so, at this point, uh, our, our study didn't turn up any information that we think is of imminent concern to anyone um, as far as drinking their water, but I think it, it really indicates that this is something that we need to know a lot more about. And so, um, if you look at studies from around the world, we've seen that um, influence from agriculture and wastewater has been linked with the occurrence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in the UK, in Cuba, in China, and in other parts of the U.S. Uh, the fact that antibiotic resistance genes can be present in both harmful bacteria, which we call pathogens, and non-harmful bacteria. And so that's one of the really big knowledge gaps moving forward is when those resistance genes are present in non-harmful bacteria can they be transferred by horizontal gene transfer, that, that bridge that we talked about, to harmful bacteria? And what are the uh, implications of that for public health? And how soon will that knowledge gap be lessened, do you think? Uh, so that's something we're actively working on, as well as scientists um, all around the world. And um, so I think that's something that we'll start to gain a better understanding of just in, as soon as the next couple of years. And we've seen severe flooding in, in Texas. We've seen flooding in Florida, in, in New Orleans. Is there a thought that this could be happening in other areas that are flooded that may have an agricultural influence in their area? Yes, that's right. Uh, we're actually uh, working on sampling right now in both Texas and Florida uh, to understand what's going on uh, with antibiotic-resistant bacteria as well as other types of uh, bacteria that can be harmful to people in those areas. So uh, in those studies, we're specifically looking at well water and trying to understand, you know, if wells can come, become contaminated uh, by large floods like this, and then how long those effects can last after a flood. Now, is anyone working, you've done the studying, but now is there a solution that you're working on? Or do you know of solutions taking place around the country or around the world uh, with this concern that you have? 
Yeah, so one thing that scientists in our research group and in labs all over the world are are trying to understand better and find solutions for is how can we limit the input of antibiotic-resistant bacteria into watersheds? So, for example, um, there's a lot of research going on in the area of manure management. So how can we treat agricultural waste in a way that reduces inputs of these bacteria? And uh, another area that we're interested in is wastewater treatment. So maybe there are certain wastewater treatment technologies that can be really effective at removing these contaminants. Are you talking to farmers? Do you think that that is something that you'd want to uh, maybe reach out to them and say, hey, this is something we're studying on a a very intimate level of this bacteria, the genes of the bacteria. It it may seem like it's a, a bit too small for a farmer to worry about. Why should they be concerned about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have a project here at Virginia Tech where we're working really closely with farmers, um, looking at the whole cycle of uh, using antibiotics in agriculture. So uh, from the time you might give antibiotics to a, uh, a cow when it becomes sick, all the way to what happens when that uh, manure is applied to agricultural fields, to what happens to the vegetables that come out of those fields. Um, And so we're working really closely with farmers to try and understand what their uh, needs are and how they normally um, handle these processes and what we can do that might be really practical ways for them to better handle uh, the possibility of spreading antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Emily Garner is a Ph.D. student at Virginia Tech. She studied the Colorado floods that happened four years ago this month and their impact on the spread of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Garner spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel. You're listening to CPR's Colorado Matters. Astronauts who spend a lot of time in space suffer health problems from living in zero gravity, and it'll only be worse on a long mission, say to Mars. So NASA's funded research into a novel some might say crazy idea to simulate gravity in space. Torin Clark at the University of Colorado Boulder is part of a team researching the idea. He's here as part of our coverage of Coloradans who've won NASA innovation grants. And Torin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What kinds of health problems do people have when they're in space for long periods of time? Yeah, there's quite a few. So they have what we call musculoskeletal deconditioning. Basically, their bones and their muscles get weaker. Their cardiovascular system gets weaker. Um, They have sensory motor issues, so issues with balance and locomotion. And then actually, some of the astronauts are now coming back with worse eyesight, actual structural changes to their eyes. Huh. And don't they age more quickly in space? Uh, Yeah, you, you could say that they, when they come back, they sort of... Uh, behave in a way that maybe they, they act a little bit older in that sense of uh, of not being quite in, in such good shape as when they first went up. Astronauts have uh, spent extended periods on the International Space Station. Scott Kelly has the U.S. record with almost a year in space. How did they deal with this? So they use a, a variety of different countermeasures right now, which is what basically different biomedical solutions to overcome these issues. Um, principally, they do quite a bit of exercise, um, a couple hours a day, usually six days a week, both aerobic and resistive exercise to help prevent bone loss, muscle loss, cardiovascular deconditioning. They also use some pharmaceutical approaches, uh, fluid loading before returning uh, uh, to Earth, uh, as well as other approaches. 
Fluid loading, what does that do? Yeah, so um, when you stand up too quickly here on Earth, you might feel lightheaded. Um, it's because your cardiovascular system is struggling to get enough blood up to your brain. Um, in space, you lose quite a bit of fluid mm-hmm. um, because of this fluid shift from your feet up towards your, he- your head when you remove gravity. So one of the potential solutions is to basically drink a bunch of salt water, which helps you retain that water right before you land. Mm-hmm. You've won a $125,000 grant from NASA's Innovative Advanced Concepts Program. The program's designed to turn things that seem like science fiction into reality. And the notion of creating gravity in space has come up quite a bit in science fiction. There are movies with a spinning spacecraft, like in 2001, A Space Odyssey. That's not what you're planning, um, which we'll hear about. But why wouldn't that approach work? Um, That certainly might work. Um, That's sort of the traditional way to approach things is to create artificial gravity through a centrifuge. There are, however, a few downsides of that. One is when you move your head back and forth, you'll experience this very strong illusion called the cross-couple illusion. It's due to your vestibular system in your inner ear. It can be very disorienting and really will cause motion sickness in anyone with a functioning vestibular system. Also, if you move your arms and legs or whole body, you'll experience this unexpected force called the Coriolis force, which will perturb your arm or, or leg movements. Um, and you also have a gravity gradient. So the G-force that you'll experience at your head will be less than that at your feet. Hmm. These issues are reduced when you have a really long radius centrifuge, but obviously that would be more expensive to send into space. So if you want a shorter radius centrifuge and you want to therefore spin it faster to create the same gravity environment here on Earth, um, you might have these issues come up. So you kind of take away the benefits. Um, you and your partner, IMSG Laboratories in Florida, have a new idea, and you call it the turbo lift, which which is also a nod to science fiction. (laughs) It's the name of the elevator in the Starship Enterprise from Star Trek. And describe what that is. Yeah, so this idea is really Jason Gruber's idea. He's the brainchild of this idea. And the idea is instead of using a centrifuge um, where you create centripetal acceleration to replicate gravity, we would actually linearly accelerate the astronaut rider. Um, And if you linearly accelerate, it would feel very much like being in a gravity-rich environment like here on Earth. It's very pure uh, gravity environment. Um, however, you get going pretty quickly, pretty quick, pretty fast. Um, so the idea would be once you do that for maybe a second, you would spin 180 degrees around. So now the feet are moving in the direction of travel, and then you would decelerate the astronaut rider uh, and then accelerate back in the other direction. The advantage to this is you'd experience gravity-like loading during both the acceleration and the deceleration. It would be like standing up here on Earth. And you'd also experience centripetal acceleration during the 180-degree rotation, which is why we sort of call it a hybrid approach to creating artificial gravity. So I'm trying to picture what this looks like for the astronaut. Can you describe it? So think about sort of laying down on a bed. um, And then if you accelerated forward, so sort of towards your head direction, um, that would push your feet down down into a a foot plate underneath your feet, um, which would be similar to standing up, right, in microgravity. Um, Then you have to spin 180 degrees around and then decelerate. And you continue to do that sequence of motions back and forth um, such that you can get a gravity-like loading through this sequence of accelerations. So I'm picturing the astronaut on a sled, um, mm-hmm. on a track, sort of in space. Is yep. that how I should be picturing it? Yeah, exactly. So, so presumably there'd be some type of track to keep them going in the in the same direction for the linear acceleration, deceleration. And then on top of that, halfway um, along the sled, there'd be some type of mechanism that would allow them to rotate 180 degrees around. So how long do the effects last? I mean, you, 
just when they're in the sled, let's say they're on the sled for an hour, uh, does that really give enough benefit to the astronaut? Yeah, that's sort of what we're thinking about now is not that you would ride on this this linear sled hybrid AG system 24 hours a day, but maybe you'd ride on about one hour a day. So you'd experience a gravity-like loading for one hour a day and then be in microgravity for the rest of the time. Um, And until we put one of these things in space, we can't be certain that that will uh, prevent some of the physiological deconditioning I talked about earlier. But there have been some ground-based studies using approaches, spaceflight analogs like bed rest, that suggest one hour a day might be beneficial um, to prevent or at least reduce the majority of these issues. How are you going to feel on this sled? Are you going to feel like you're on a roller coaster? How fast is it going? Yeah. We we like to think of it more of sort of jumping up and down than like a trampoline. So the, the one Earth gravity is, you know, what we experience when you stand up every day here on Earth. So that wouldn't be particularly unusual or surprising. The 180-degree rotation, depending upon how fast it occurs, might be pretty quick. Um, it's not something that people don't experience, certainly if you're you know, a professional snowboarder or skier. Um, that would be something you might experience when you do a flip, for example. Um, but the idea would be, you know, be like going down on a trampoline, bouncing back up, spinning around and coming back down. And how long is this track that they're on? Yeah, it's a good question. And one of the things that we've really been researching right now. So there's different designs that we've come up with. Um, some of our original designs where you might accelerate for one second, have one second of constant velocity before you have the one second of rotation one second again, and then one second for deceleration. That track is uh, uh, over 150 feet, so pretty long. Um, we also have come up to, with designs, though, where the acceleration period is shorter, and we go immediately from acceleration into the one second, 180-degree rotation. And for those designs, you can actually get as short as about 25 feet. And that includes the length of the person, which actually makes up the majority of that, because you have to take the length of, say, a six-foot-tall male uh, and rotate them around to the other, other direction. So that makes about 12 feet of that 25. And again, this is outside of a spacecraft. Yeah, we've come up with with different ideas. This could either be housed in a cabin within your spacecraft. We've also thought up ideas where maybe the person is inside a small pod, sort of like being standing up in the shower in the morning, um, and the pod is what actually accelerates. So the pod might be exterior to the, to the spacecraft. And the advantage of that is you don't have to take up as much pressurized habitable volume within the spacecraft. I have to say that lying on this sled and being catapulted back and forth um, somewhere in space sounds terrifying. Um, How do you think astronauts will react? Well, so right now they have these pretty uh, extravagant extravagant contraptions to have them run on a treadmill using bungee cords and so forth, um, which can be somewhat uncomfortable many times. So it's... We'll have to wait and see, but the, the hope is that it actually this would be sort of a, a pleasant time where you might have some alone time away from your crewmates. Um, you could actually experience Earth gravity, which, you know, in a long-duration mission, you might be missing to some extent. You can imagine if you were never allowed to stand up out of bed for a long period of time, you'd really want to stand up out of bed. Um, and also, it might be an opportunity, as I mentioned, to get some alone time, but maybe to, you know, catch up on personal things. You could listen to, to Skype-type messages from your family, um, watch a movie on a, on a television screen or something like that. Torin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Torin Clark is an assistant professor at CU Boulder, where he studies the challenges humans face during space exploration. He's part of a team that won a grant from the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program. It's to develop a sled-like contraption to simulate gravity for astronauts during long trips in space. NIAC is designed to turn ideas that sound like science fiction into reality. Today is the final day of the program's symposium in Denver.
It's a dramatic plot. Three siblings uncover a horrific family secret. Denver's Curious Theater launches its 20th season with a story that's rooted in racism. CPR arts reporter Corey Jones explains. The play is called Appropriate, and before the lights even turn on, this is how it starts. With the buzz of cicadas. What is that sound? How does that sound make one feel? There's discomfort. That's Jamil Jude. He came from Atlanta to direct this regional premiere at Curious Theater. So when you're thrust into, at the beginning of the play, darkness and just filled with the sound of cicadas, you're immediately off-put. And that discomfort, Jude says, sets the tone for the rest of the production. Appropriate takes place in Arkansas. When the lights finally go up... You're seeing a derelict plantation home. You're seeing tons of clutter as family members uh, take things out of rooms that have been untouched for 20 years. The story centers around three grown siblings... After their father's death, they've returned to his southern homestead. They've brought their own families, too. It's hot. It's muggy. Tensions are high. If you needed help, you could have asked for it, which you didn't do. I'm which sorry. you never did. I didn't know I was supposed free. to be applying for your assistance. The families go through boxes, stacks, and shelves of dusty stuff until a photo album surfaces that throws everything into a tailspin. Oh, my God! The old photos show black people who have been lynched. This comes as a shock to this white, well-to-do family. Their father was a respected judge in Washington, D.C., with his sights set on the Supreme Court. His children insist he had no racist bone in his body, but suddenly they're struggling to figure out what this says about their late father. Katie Maltese is managing director at Curious Theater. I think what this show is really about is grappling with our racial legacy, both as individuals and as a country, and having to come to grips with the ramifications of slavery that we have never dealt with as a country. While the company chose appropriate nearly a year ago, Maltese says it's especially relevant right now. She points to recent white supremacy rallies that have turned violent, like the one in Charlottesville. This play also embodies a motto that Curious Theater adopted a couple years ago. No guts, no story. That's artistic director Chip Walton. He co-founded Curious. We're committed to telling stories that are provocative, that take a certain amount of bravery to both produce as well as to engage with as an audience. Curious, Walton says, has always explored contemporary issues on stage. The company is also known for its commitment to producing new works. But recently, Curious went even further and rebranded itself as a social justice organization. Walton says every show this season touches on a social or political issue, from war to assisted suicide. The world is changing around us, and as the world changes, it's incumbent upon us as artists and as organizations to respond to that world. So I'm interested, first and foremost, in, well, does it feel helpful to have some framing questions? After every performance, Curious Theater also hosts discussions for the audience to dissect the play and its themes with cast and crew. On this night, the conversation goes from how racism isn't confined to the South to the difficulty of talking about these things with our families. It's Rahem Mulatu's first time at Curious. A friend invited the Thornton resident along, and Mulatu says she liked the play because of how it addresses racism and mental health. But... I have to be honest, right? Three-quarters of the people, they will go home tomorrow morning, they wake up and they forget about it. Or they will say, like, oh, this is so wonderful. They say, you know, wonderful things, but they never take action. 
Chip Walton of Curious says he does hope their 20th season inspires people to take action, but that it's up to each individual to decide what that looks like. In the meantime, Curious will continue to stage thought-provoking work. The company received a $100,000 grant to carry out this mission and to build its reputation over the next three years. It means being able to present work that exceeds what our previous scope or our capabilities were. Curious continues to push for more diversity throughout the Colorado theater community, too. Walton says he hopes his company reflects that. They have taken steps to diversify their board and artistic company. But Walton admits they've still got a lot more work to do. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. Appropriate runs at Denver's Curious Theater through mid-October. That's our show. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is CPR's Colorado Matters.